trying to figure out who was up next. Looked on the board, decided it was me. Well, good evening and really good to be here back in Melbourne again. Beautiful to enjoy fresh, cold, uh, sub-zero weather <laughs> the middle of August. Um, we spent a few years in Melbourne, really enjoyed it, and uh, the worst decision of our lives was moving away from here. So if you're thinking about it, don't do it. I'm wondering if you've ever been at the traffic light, and this happened to me. I'm sitting there in my car at a red light, foot on the brake, when all of a sudden the car starts moving. Have you ever had that happen to you? No? And you press the brake really hard and the cars are still moving. Ever had that? Yes. Yes? You had that? And you look around and then you start to get dizzy and you feel nauseous and you don't know what to do. You pull the handbrake and you're pressing the brake and the car's still moving. Haven't had that happen? It's one of those uh, once-in-a-lifetime experiences. I think uh, the, the street name for it is Vertigo, where your sensory input doesn't match what's happening around you, and you start to get a little bit confused. And it's not you that's moving. It's the cars around you that are moving. Yeah, had that happen? Yeah, maybe. Don't want to admit it. That's okay. Uh, JFK Jr., does that name ring a bell? July 16, 1999, gets in a little Piper Saratoga with his wife, Carolyn, and her sister, Lauren. Um, the air traffic control says there's some bad weather coming up. Be careful. Maybe you shouldn't go. It's night. They want to go from A to B. And all we found out on the news a few hours later is that somehow they disappeared, crashed. Uh, the NTSB carried out some investigations, and they found out that there was nothing wrong with the plane. It wasn't so much the weather, but it's what they call spatial disorientation. Have you heard of that before? Yeah? Lieutenant William Ocker in the Army Air Corps uh, in 1927 suggested that pilots don't use their senses when flying airplanes. They need more than just their senses. They need instruments. Do you know what they did with uh, Captain William Ocker? Twice they sent him to a psychiatric unit until they finally realized that indeed when you're in really bad weather, you might be in an airplane and it looks like you're flying right side up, but because it's so dark and because the weather is bad, you may be completely upside down. Your vestibular system, the liquid in your ears doesn't match, doesn't match what you're seeing and you think you're doing the right thing when you're actually flying upside down and traveling at very fast speeds towards the ground. That's what they say happened to JFK Jr. Just a few years ago, a pilot in America had the same thing happen and lost a $50 million airplane. Not because his senses weren't good, but our senses don't always tell us the truth. Sometimes our senses are insufficient to guide us. Now, our senses are pretty good for uh, basic tasks like walking. <laughs> you know, most of us can keep our bal balance fairly steady. Our senses are good to make fairly simple decisions. Our senses get us by on a lot of things, but there is one thing that our senses just aren't designed to help us with. And that's to know what the future holds. There used to be a show on television not too many years ago, Tomorrow's Newspaper. Do you guys remember that? Where some guy would get Tomorrow's Newspaper delivered to his front door every single morning and then he'd try to save the world in the next 24 hours because he knew what was going to go wrong. 
You see? And the future is very important. Every single waking moment of our lives, we're making decisions about the future. And every moment of our lives, when we're awake, there are people and forces and influences trying to define what truth is. Have a think about just today on the street. Did anybody in any way try to persuade you that something was true? Think carefully about it. Have you seen any billboards today? What are those billboards trying to persuade you to do? (laughs) Okay. Part with your hard-earned cash. Why? Because if you satisfy this particular need, what's going to happen to you in your life? You're going to be happier. Every moment that we're awake, we're making decisions about the future, and they're always to do with being happy. How many of you woke up this morning and said, you know, I want to have a miserable day. I want to be really unhappy. The weather is blue, I'm going to be blue. What can I do to make my life bad today and into the future? How many of you did that this morning? If you did, don't put your hand up. It may have turned out that way, but I can guarantee that's not what you were planning this morning, was it? We constantly make decisions about what will make us happier all the time. Some people say, no, I like to reflect on the past. Why? Because they want to make the future better. But the problem is our senses are simply not good enough to deal with the future. We're like pilots, like JFK, and like many others, flying in the dark. And yeah, we know how to fly the plane. Our senses are pretty good. But we're in circumstances and situations where we're blind. We're not exactly sure what to do. We're going to look at a story in the Bible of someone in a very similar situation. We're going to go to John chapter 12 and verse 15. Verse 12 to 15. John chapter 12 <coughs> And verse 12 to 15. John in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. John, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the youngest disciples of Jesus, probably in his uh, late teens, early 20s at the most. And he writes the account of this particular event. Verse 12. On the next day, uh, many people that came to the feast, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat on it, and as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes sitting on an ass's colt. Now, while this procession is happening, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem through a particular gate. On the other side of the city, there's another procession taking place. In fact, a procession that has almost as many people. The very same day, there are two huge parties coming into Jerusalem. It's a Sunday. It's roughly a week before the Passover, which was the main Jewish festival. And the other party is led by a gentleman, an infamous gentleman, who bore the name of Pontius Pilate. He didn't live in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate was like a McDonald's franchisee owner, right? You could buy yourself a McDonald's and you don't own the full rights to it, but you get some profits from it and obviously you can do things to improve it. But at the end of the day, McDonald's is still owned by McDonald's and you have to look like McDonald's even though you're a part owner. That's what Pontius Pilate was. He was the governor of Judea, of that part of the world, which is really a franchise. The Roman Empire would give different people franchises, franchises, throughout the empire, and they would say to them, you look after them, you make sure they pay their taxes, and you're able to take a profit after you pay your dues to the Roman government. 
It was a very good way of establishing order, and this is what Pontius Pilate was. He was, uh, he, I guess his title or his status in life was from the equestrian class. In Australia, we don't really have classes, but if you went to England, he would have been a knight, right? Not quite royalty, but basically just below your senate, your royalty, your princes. This is where the equestrian or the knights come in. Pontius refers to the area he came from, Ponti, uh, a tribe that lived in the mountains about 200 kilometers north of Rome, and they were a vicious, fierce tribe. In 82 BC, uh, just a couple of decades before uh, Pilate comes to power in Judea, um, his people almost defeated the Roman Empire. They were that warlike, that vicious, that strong. Pilate ended up joining the Roman army as a soldier. He came from a sort of well-to-do family, a merchant class, but grew through the ranks, became a general, and eventually was made a governor or a knight in the Roman Empire and given Judea. But the person that put him in power was not the emperor. It was Sejanus. Now, this will make a little bit more sense as we unfold the story. Who was Sejanus? Sejanus was the personal bodyguard, for lack of a better word, of the Roman emperor Tiberius. Now, Tiberius had a lot of fun ruling the world, but like most things, after a while, he got bored, right? It, you know, he ruled the world for a while, and uh, you know, there's no retirement as a Roman emperor. You, you do it till you die. And uh, he wasn't ready to die yet. He didn't want to be killed, so he decided to sort of retire on the island of Capri, while still being emperor, and he left his personal bodyguard in charge of the empire, Sejanus. And Sejanus was supposed to keep paying taxes, obviously, to the emperor and look after the thing, but Sejanus kind of liked being in charge. And he took it upon himself that maybe Caesar Tiberius, uh, maybe he might not come back, maybe he might retire for good. And maybe, just maybe, he might make a good emperor when Tiberius does die. So they actually instituted a national holiday for Sejanus' birthday. It was wonderful. And they started to make gold statues of Sejanus. And people started to come to him for favors, and he essentially became the emperor in Rome. Tiberius hears about this, and Tiberius gets very upset. Now, it was Sejanus that had made Pilate, one of his friends, a governor in Judea. Tiberius hears sends a delegation back to Rome with a letter, and they invite Sejanus into the Senate to promote him even higher. I mean, where do you go from uh, basically being the emperor? But he was very vain. He thought, oh, good, I'm uh, moving up in the world. So he goes, they arrest him on the spot, and that night they hang him without a trial. And Tiberius's loyal followers went on a rampage, killing his children, his family, his relatives, and anybody that was linked to Sejanus. Now, here is Pilate. This is AD 31. Here is Pilate, AD 33, about a year and a half later, in Judea, and he was a friend of Sejanus. Not a friend of Tiberius, who's back in power now, Sejanus having been killed. So Pilate finds himself in quite a difficult political context. Sejanus hated the Jews. He expelled the Jews out of Rome. He killed them wherever he could, as did Pilate. When Pilate was in charge of Judea, and if anybody didn't listen to him, he would just send in the army to kill hundreds and thousands of people. That's how Pilate was. Tiberius liked the Jews. So there's a lot of political conflict going on in Judea. Every single Passover, Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. It was uh, too dry, too arid, too noisy, too... Um, too many troublemakers in Jerusalem. Pilate lived further up north. But every Passover, he would come to Jerusalem a week before with 3,000 troops. 
to maintain the peace. So while Jesus is coming on one side of the city, into the city, Pilate with 3,000 troops is coming from the other side in preparation for the Passover to keep the peace, to make sure there were no revolts and people wouldn't kill themselves. You see, a few years earlier... A Roman soldier in the Antonia Fortress, Antonia was the little, I guess a fort within Jerusalem, where um, the soldiers that were garrisoned in Jerusalem, about 500 of them lived. And a few years earlier, a soldier thought it would be funny to get up on the wall and expose his backside to the 250,000 Jews that had come there for the Passover. The uproar was so big that 30,000 people lost their lives in the rebellion that ensued. So Pilate wasn't taking any more chances. He was going to make sure every Passover, him and his 3,000 men, they would keep the peace, things were going to be good, and he didn't want any trouble with Tiberius. He was already on notice. He was a friend of Sejanus. Sejanus was the bad guy. He was last year's guy. Pilate had to make sure that he, I guess, uh, you know, kept above board. The story continues just a few days later in John Chapter 18. We're going to read from verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Hall of Judgment. It was early. They themselves didn't go into the Judgment Hall, this is uh, the priests, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate went to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was so that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled when he said the kind of death he would die. Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, are you saying this of yourself, or did others tell it to you? Pilate said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus said, My kingdom isn't of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight that I wouldn't be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from here. Pilate said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate asks a very significant question, one that we ask ourselves every single day, sometimes even without realizing it. What is truth? We constantly make decisions about what we think is true, don't we? And sometimes we get it right, and it's good for us, and sometimes we get it wrong, and what happens when we get it wrong? Last time you met that special somebody and you knew that this was the one and you got it wrong and anyone had that happen? It hurts. It's painful. Young couple move into a new neighborhood. You may have heard the story and uh, they've unpacked a lot of boxes but quite a bit ago they unload the barbecue, put it in the backyard. Next morning they wake up, the barbecue's gone. They thought it was a good neighborhood. They thought it was safe. They thought things were going to be better here than the last neighborhood they were in. Very disappointed. But two days later... They go to the backyard and the barbecue's back with a note. Sorry we took your barbecue. Needed to borrow it. Here it is. And here are two movie tickets to tonight's premiere. Enjoy yourselves. Ah, it's so good. It is a good neighborhood after all. 
Okay, they were in a hurry. They needed to borrow it, but they gave it back. And look, they even paid two movie tickets. They go to the movie, come back, and the whole house is empty. There's nothing in the house. And they find the note, hope you enjoyed the movie. See, truth matters. When we know what is true, we can make good decisions that lead to happiness. When we don't know what is true, we make bad decisions and they lead to pain and ultimately to even to death, destruction. So here is Pilate and they bring him Jesus and Jesus looks like a good man. Why? Why? What, what issue do you have with him? Oh, he just reads the Bible differently to us. And what do you want me to do to him? Like uh, tell him off, give him a B minus or what? Oh, no, we want you to kill him. Now, Pilate doesn't normally have a problem with killing. He's happy to kill. But all of a sudden, something in Jesus' eyes make him pause. And the Jews keep pestering and pestering and pestering. And then just a little later on, Pilate's wife sends him a message. And she says, I had a dream last night about Jesus. And something terrible happens. So please don't have anything to do with him. And then he finds out that some people believe Jesus is, is, is a king or the son of God. And Pilate is really torn. Who knows why? Because he's a very violent man. But all of a sudden he pauses and he asks, what is truth? How do we know what is right, what is wrong? How do we know what is truth? How can I make a good decision here? And then the priests, very clever, chapter 19, I think around verse 12, they say to him, if you release this man or if you don't kill this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Wow, way to get him. Hey, Pilate, remember what happened to your good friend Sejanus? Oh, yeah, the guy who got hanged. That's right. Remember what happened to his kids? They speared them publicly. Yeah, remember what happened to his wife? Well, she committed suicide before the mob got to her. Remember what happened to his friends, to his cousins, to his neighbors, to anybody that had ever spoken to Sejanus? Remember that? Yeah. If you let Jesus go, same thing will happen to you. How do you make a decision in a context like that? You use your senses, right? How do we make decisions in difficult times? We rely on our experience, on our senses. And that's what Pilate does. No, no, I'm a friend of Caesar's. I'm a loyal friend of Caesar's. And he gives Jesus up to be crucified. Only a few years later, Pilate gets called to Rome. Guess for what? for being unjust in his judgments. Isn't that amazing? What is truth? He didn't give Jesus a chance to answer. He made a decision using his senses, what I know, my experience, evaluating, analyzing, doing the stats, crunching the numbers. It's going to work out a lot better for me if I please the Jews. Because if I don't, they're going to go to to Caesar and say he's a bad guy. And yet his very decisions are what led to his demise. Gets called to Rome, stripped of his knighthood, of his equestrian title. Tradition is a bit hazy, but they, one tradition says that uh, they gave him the option of killing himself. And he basically died by suicide at the hands of, uh, I guess, being forced by the government. But Jesus answered the question not to Pilate, but to his followers just a few nights before. John chapter 14, verse 6. John Chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus 
said to his disciples, or he's here, uh, he's specifically talking to, to Philip. Jesus said to him, or Thomas, sorry, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus is saying to them, what is truth? How do you know what is true? What is the ultimate, the absolute truth? Jesus says, it's me. Turn to me, and I, I am truth. I have truth. I am the way to truth. I can lead you. I can guide you. You want to be happy? Not short-term happiness. You see, what in the world, in, in the world around us, there's a lot of short-term happiness. If you're feeling a bit down, there are so many things you can do. Some legal, some illegal. If you want to do some of the illegal things, I've got friends. Talk to me. See me afterwards. No, I won't point you in the right direction. You can watch a movie, you can eat some food, you can take some drugs, you can smoke a joint, you can have a beer, glass of alcohol, all these things that give us a little bit of happiness. And how long does it last? Not very long. Oh, you can shop. That doesn't last very long either. I tried that. When I was at uni, my parents were very kind. I spent several thousand dollars a month on clothes. And I was never in fashion. By the time I finally filled my wardrobe with what was in fashion, I go to the shop, and now all the guys are wearing pink shirts. I never bought pink shirts. I, I bought one, but no, it wasn't for me. Those things never last. But Jesus says, I can give you something that lasts. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 5, verse 38 and 39, if you'd like to turn there, Jesus is talking to, to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are also people concerned about the future. And they're concerned about having eternal life. Is it a good thing to want? How many of you wake up in the morning thinking, today's a good day to die? I can die today and, yeah. We have a desire to live, to keep living and living, as did the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they believe they can find the truth on how to have eternal life in the Bible. So they turn to the Bible and they're looking, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And sometimes we come to the Bible and we ask the same question. Okay, what do I have to do? I have to go to church, I have to keep this, I can't eat that, I can't go here, I can't go there, I can do this, I can't do that. But Jesus says to them, you're searching the scriptures in vain. Because the scriptures aren't talking about eternal life. What are they talking about? He says the scriptures or the Bible actually talk about me. And if you have me, what do you have as a bonus? Eternal life is a bonus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Bible... Very close. I mean, these days, everybody has a Bible on their iPhones. It's free. The Bible is the way for us to get to know Jesus. And some people say, well, how can you know someone that you can't see, that you can't touch, that you can't feel? You know, when I was a single, lonely young man, well, it wasn't quite that bad, but uh, I was on the internet and I, long story, but started talking to this young woman across the other side of the world, and we spent almost a year just chatting. Never saw her. She wouldn't send me a photo, not for about six, eight months. We talked, we really got to know each other. I was able to get to know somebody without touching them, without seeing them, without hearing them, without smelling them, just by reading correspondence. And Jesus says the same, the Bible is a way for you to get to know me. It's my letter to you, it's the way I reveal myself to you. And when you allow yourself to become my friend, then let me become your friend. Eternal life, that's a bonus. That's just an add-on. That's an extra. And Jesus says, you know, I, I have a particular purpose. I have a plan. I have a reason why I created you. Have you ever asked yourself, why am I here? Why was I born? Why did God create me? 
Jesus, I actually have an answer to that. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Would you like to just turn to that quickly? Roy said the lights go off at midnight, so um, it's only 8.30. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34. Here Jesus is talking or outlining what happens at the end of time. And this is um, the king talking to those who have chosen to have a friendship with him, to know him, to follow him. Then, verse 34, Then will the king say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What was prepared from the very beginning? Before you and I ever existed, what did God have in mind? Have you ever wondered why people have kids? Well, I'll tell you what went through my, uh, my mind and my wife's mind. I hate mowing the lawn and washing the dishes. I'll tell you what, I mean, there's a dishwasher, but someone's got to put it in there. So after a few years of marriage, we said, honey, you know, life's got to be better than this. We can't spend the rest of our lives mowing lawns, washing cars, doing dishes. What about children? Is that how it usually works? Some of you are thinking, well, for my parents it was like that. No. A couple that love each other get to a point where they say, we have so much love to give. We've accumulated a few possessions, maybe a car that works, and we would like to share everything we have with somebody else. And here Jesus is saying the very same thing to people at the end of time. He's saying, I have an inheritance from the very beginning of time. Why did God create? God is a marvelous genius. There is no limit to his imagination, to his creativity. And, and the Bible says God is love. What does love do? It gives. It gives unconditionally. And God says, from the very beginning, I had this idea. I want to give everything I have, including myself and my time and my ability to create. I want to give it to somebody. I want to share it with somebody. Who? Well, there's nobody around, so let me make someone. Let me make a few people. Let me give them an inheritance. That's why God made you and I. He didn't give us because he, he needed some helpers in heaven. Oh, the universe is a big place to run. You know, I need all the assistants and secretaries I can get. I need some errand boys and some errand girls. Hey, Vanessa, can you make some coffee? <laughs> That's not what God was thinking. It's just from the very beginning, he had this inheritance in mind. That was God's plan all along. You were not destined to become managers of multinational companies. That was not your destiny. You weren't destined to become billionaires and be able to buy your own tiny little island. That's not what you were created. That's not what Jesus had in mind when he decided to make you. You were destined to rule worlds. You were destined to expand the universe. And when you got to the edge of the universe and you felt, well, Lord, I can handle a bit more, I can just imagine God just saying, let me just push it out a few billion light years. We'll make some more space. That was your destiny. That's, what, that's why God made us. And not to live in a selfish way of ruling, but to enjoy his entire creative genius. That's why you are alive. Something went wrong, right? Because at the moment, we're not exactly inheriting what we're talking about. Something went wrong. But then this Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, actually says something about this whole process of what's going wrong. Let's go to First Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. Now, we don't have a chance to go into the, the whole history and the whole detail We'll spend a little bit more time tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon. Uh, but just as an overview, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, Give thanks to the Father who has made us, 
um, meet or who has qualified or who has equipped us to be partakers of the inheritance of saints in light. The Bible says something went dreadfully wrong. We call it sin or selfishness. People decided to turn their backs on the concept of love, on giving unconditionally, on being like God, kind and always thinking of others. Instead, humanity decided to be selfish. And what's the end result of selfishness? How many of you have really, really selfish friends? that only think about themselves. You know, you go to have a a coffee or a drink or something with them and you sit down and you say, tell me about your day. And two hours later, they're still telling you about their day, right? And you say, well, let me tell you about my day. Oh, I've got to go. Are they the kind of friends you like to have? You see, selfishness, it it pushes people away. Selfishness leads to self-destruction. You look at the world around us. Are we making it a better world or are we destroying it? We're actually destroying it. You haven't seen the news lately? We're destroying it. The vote is in. So because something went wrong, God says, I have to put a quarantine, a time out. I have to protect the rest of the universe from people who might destroy it. But he says something else here, but I haven't given up on you yet. You're my child. I created you to inherit. You're, you're destined for eternity to receive everything I have to give. But I'm not giving up. He says, I am going to qualify. I am going to equip you. I am going to make you worthy. I am going to work with you to prepare you for what? What does it say in that verse? For what? I am going to make you meet. I am going to equip you. I am going to train you, prepare you for that inheritance. To go back to what I initially created you for. If you want to turn to Revelation chapter 21, verse 7 very close to the end of the Bible. Jesus gives, I guess, a final encouragement, high-five moment, one of those inspirational quotes you put on those posters with a guy holding to a cliff with one hand. And he says, to he who overcomes, what? What will happen? Good for him. High-five. Is that what he says? To him who overcomes, I shall be his God, and he shall be my son, my daughter, my child. That's what I had in mind all along. And on top of that, it's not just my child, but they're going to be my heir. They're going to inherit everything. You know, we we fight and work so hard just to be able to buy 450 square meters in Melbourne, put a house on there, raise children, and pay the mortgage off by the time we're 55 and say, I've arrived. God's looking and saying, if only, if only. That's not the future I have in mind for you. Yeah, there's been some bumps along the way. Something's gone wrong. You can study the Bible with Roy and Jinhar to look at that later. But, but I have plans. I love you. I want to show you the future. I want to guide you step by step. I want to prepare you. I want to equip you. I want to transform you so that I can prepare you for eternity so that you're not going to destroy the universe like what you've done to earth as humanity. Jesus says, I am that way. I am the truth. I can be that instrument that guides you in the dark. You don't know what to do in your relationships. You don't know what to do in your career. You don't know what to do tomorrow. Jesus says, well, just get to know me. Let me be your friend through the Bible. 
Let me reveal myself to you. Let me show you who I am. Let me show you what I am like. Let me show you what I've done, what I'm doing, what I can do. Let me show you what I want to do for you, what I am doing and what I will do. Let me be your friend, your guide, your savior. Let me be those instrument panels for you. In the midst of life's storms, at the darkest times, when your senses just aren't enough to get you by, when you can't see the future, when you can't see tomorrow, let me guide you, let me walk with you, let me be the truth. And if you do, I promise I will prepare you, not just for this life, but for eternity. I promise the happiness that I can give you doesn't last for a day, it's not going to last for a week, it's going to last for eternity. When you get to the end of eternity and you feel like, well, where to from now? Well, we'll just stretch eternity back a little bit more. What is truth? That's not our senses. <laughs> our senses aren't even good to fly an airplane in the dark. What is truth? It's not our experience. If our past experience was good enough to guide us into the future, we'd all be billionaires by now, right? What is truth? It's not even our family and friends. They have good intentions, but they don't know what happens tomorrow. They can't give us eternal life. They can't point us in the right direction in terms of relationships, in terms of career, in terms of important life choices. They can't do any of that. They love us, they care for us, but they can't. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Spend some time each day getting to know me from the Bible, and I can speak to you. I can guide you. I can walk with you. And I can give you that happiness that keeps going on and on and on and on.